This is Channel 253. You can ring my shame bell. I'm Marguerite, and I want you to move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. You'll like it. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Dot com. So we're going to go get started now. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, folks in the back of the room, we already had the conversation. I believe in you to be good. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Adult Civics Happy Hour number eight, Build Housing, Not Walls. No, no, no. That was, that was not a more cheering pause. That was a stop it pause. So very quickly, if you've been to Adult Civics Happy Hours one through eight, this is your eighth time, raise your hand, please. Show them some love, please. Show them some love, show them some love. So today's conversation is an outgrowth of last month's conversation. Uh, last time around, we had the rent is too damn high, and we kind of got a couple of unified theory items about why the rent is so high in Tacoma. And so I'm going to take those and pitch them before our panel today. And we're going to talk today about building housing, not walls. Uh, housekeeping, please. Next slide. So I'm not going to name everybody for expediency's sake, but understand this entire event is done um, as an act of love by volunteers. So if one of them is near you right now, give them a high five. Thank you to all our organizers. Okay. I especially want to say thanks to Marguerite. Basically, this started because we were, in a, we were in a booth at Doyle's, and she was like, I want to take your class and give it to adults at night. And I was like, all right. And so here we are. All right. Next, please. I also want to shout out our technicians who make this possible. So we have Adam Weigel from Bootstrapper Studios. Adam, thank you. We have producer Doug from the Moonyard Studios. If you're thinking about starting a podcast or recording an audiobook or recording an album or, 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 holla at your boy. Uh, and then also we get technical support from Matt Martinez from KNKX. All right. One more. One thing I want to say is, so this event is sponsored by Move to Tacoma, and Move to Tacoma is the kind of the first podcast of the Channel 253 network, and so we have a host of, sorry, a network of podcasts here in the city of Tacoma. Uh, we have Move to Tacoma, we have the Nerf Armor podcast, my favorite. Uh, we have Citizen Tacoma with Jenny Jacobs. Jenny, wave, please. Okay. We have the Flounders B team hosted by Stephen Kettleson. Stephen, wave, please. Thank you. We have today one half of the interchangeable white ladies with us. Hope Teague Bowling, wait, please. Um, I thought Taco Man was here at one point. I haven't seen him this evening. Um, and then we have the Crossing Division podcast uh, hosted by Dave Jones. We're not calling her by her name in this capacity. Sorry, by her office. Yeah. <laughs> I forget. Julie Anderson uh, and Justin Camerata. All right, next. So just some reminders. This is happy hour. It's an informal occasion. Uh, do you. Grab a drink when you need a drink. Go to the bathroom when you need to. Uh, we're going to have questions, but it's a facilitated Q&A at the end. Uh, we'll take questions high-tech via Twitter. We're using hashtag ACHH253. And if you don't tweet or you're too good for that, uh, we have two facilitators with index cards. We have Hope Teague over here and Lindsay Stevens over here. And so you can give them your questions, and they will uh, bring your questions in the conversation. The other thing is, is that this is also a jargon-free zone, and so we have a shame bell. And so for our panelists, uh, I'm going to warn you now, if you get awash in jargon and start talking about aduas and duas and adudas and doodoo without explaining it, then they're going to ring the shame bell. And like, I'll try to save you from it, but like, I can't save everybody. Okay. Next, please. 
So now to our panel. Uh, we have three experts here today. Uh, first, we have Lauren, sorry, Lauren Cohen, and he's a developer at Point Ruston. Uh, I teach government, and right now we're talking about campaign finance. And so one of the things I'm really interested in is like the idea of independent expenditures. And so I call Lauren an independent political expender. So Lauren, come on up, please. All right. Next. Hey. Next. We have Shirley Schultz, sorry, Shirley Schultz. She's a city planner from the city of Tacoma and a low-key fan of Adult Civics Happy Hour. And then this is a complete dodge. Next. We have Ian, who's also a city planner of the city of Tacoma, and I frankly am not sure about the difference between their jobs, so I'll let them explain. So Ian, come on up, please. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Have a seat, please. Oh, that's actually not true. We have one more panelist joining us, a last minute addition I'm kind of excited about. Um, my Adult Civics Happy Hour version 1.0 co-host, Eric Hanberg, is gonna come up today and talk about the environmental impacts of building housing. So Eric, come on in. Yay! Eric, that is a smashing coat. You look very warm. All right, so at the rent is too damn high last month, we kind of ended up saying that the rent in Tacoma is too high for two reasons. One, there's a bunch of institutional lenders, sorry, institutional landlords who came in after the crash and scooped up houses and they're basically like making profit here in the city. And the other was a lack of supply. And the lack of supply is based on a couple of complicated factors. One of the factors was, uh, if I want to build in Tacoma, I'm working from the same labor pool as people building in Seattle, and frankly, it's more profitable to build in Seattle. And so, that's what the theory that came out of the last meeting was. I would love, before we get started with anything else, kind of too deep in this, your thoughts down the line on that. Starting with mine? Yep. So I work in the permitting department, and I talk to, and, and I'm going to lose my voice probably because I've been talking to developers all afternoon. Um, I think there is a supply issue. I think that there's a gap in what's getting built, and that can be some of the more affordable housing that does get built. Um, and whether, and this is jargon, but it's actually real words, um, what we call the missing middle, which are the smaller apartment units, the smaller buildings where it's a smaller community of three to four units or six to eight units versus the large buildings that people like Lauren are building and the single family homes that no one can afford. Ian Munz, Long Range Planning, City of Tacoma. Uh, my, my passion is about regional issues, and I, I, so I'm very involved in the Tucson Regional Council and their planning. I mean, the reality is that we have one to two million people coming to this region in the next 20 years. And so uh, um, we can do some things, but the basic market forces are, are coming, and the big issue from a lot of smart growth planners, which I'd like to consider myself one, is how do we design sensibly around transit and not just build further and further out so we fill up, uh, build all the way to the mountain. So, I mean, that's going to be the struggle. How do we do sensitive, uh, mixed income, um, diverse communities built around transit? And that's going to be the big conversation that I'm involved in for the next few years. Lauren, same question to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's so complicated. There are so anyway, three bazillion intangible moving pieces when you put a, a, a deal together, and the, the probably the most important one is your cost of capital, and we're a secondary, arguably tertiary market to some of these lenders, and uh, that, that creates this this barrier. Uh, but uh oh, what what, what, what was what, what was jargony? 
Tertiary. We are not Seattle, therefore we have less people here that make a lot of money, therefore the the response to the market is less than what you'd get in Seattle, which is a primary market. Harder to get loan money. Harder to get loan money, exactly. So. Right. So what I want to do is really fast. You both work in planning for the city, correct? Could you explain the difference between your roles so we can specialize questions? I, I do everything but permits. And I do permits and everything else. <laughs> that was very graceful. Okay. So if people want more housing built in the city of Tacoma, and I think that that's the consensus in the room that we want more housing because more housing will bring down costs. What has to happen? Like, what are the, who, who are the politicians? What are the forces? Like, what are the, the mechanisms that it's going to take to create more housing in the city of Tacoma? Outside money, equity coming into the market that then attracts the debt financing from banks. So, the, I followed that, but I want to make sure we follow that. So, why do we need outside funding in order to build housing in the city? I, 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 it's an obvious question, but I want to make sure we can flush that out for people. Uh, you know, and that's actually a good distinction. It doesn't necessarily have to be outside money. It just has to be more investors willing to put their equity in to match a bank loan. Uh, usually that's going to come from outside of this community. But right now, you can sort of count the big developers on, on two hands that are active in the community until there's uh, more activity. It, it, that's what's going to keep the number of housing, be, housing starts from happening. You mentioned that you were on the phone all day with developers, right? Yes. And so when you're on the phone with developers about building housing in Tacoma, what are they saying to you? Uh, there are a couple different things. Um, one, to tag on to what Lauren was saying, it's not just necessarily more money, but I think it's a different way of looking at how you lend and who you give money to. Um, I can't not give money to, lend money to. Um, I can count probably on both hands the number of developers we have who've been really successful with single-family homes um, and are, have really even survived through the downturn doing single-family homes. And they want to come in and they want to start doing six units or eight units, but, but the financing is completely different for multifamily, which we're going to need, than it is for single-family homes. And they just can't get it. They can't make that leap. And there's not a financial institution willing to take the leap and help them build. So that's one thing I hear. And then I often hear, like I was telling you beforehand, I had two different developers looking at the same lot today saying, I can't make that pencil. I, can't, I cannot rent units of that size in this market for what I would need to to make it work. I can only afford to build a single family home there. So let's think of a development that we all know, like Proctor Station. I think most of us are aware like where Proctor Station is and have seen it. How much does it cost to build a, a, a complex that size? A lot. <laughs> um, Wait, like, let's the... say somewhere between $250,000 per unit to 300000 a unit, plus or minus. Okay. Eric, go ahead. I want to give it a little context here because to the question that I heard, you know, what is it going to take to build in Tacoma, there's another question which is instead of somewhere else, 
And one of the things that happened back in the 90s is everyone was really worried about sprawl, which is something that you hear a lot less about as a big concern because of something called the Growth Management Act. And what the Growth Management Act did is it said you can't build in all of these areas. Basically, we don't want Seattle and Tacoma to build right up to Mount Rainier or the Cascades. The problem is that we live in a state where it says the day you file the permit is, is the day the rules apply. So back in the mid-90s, all of these permits got filed in all of these outlying places for giant, you know, huge developments of thousands of homes. Basically as many apartments as you're building, but spread out over acres and acres and acres. And so the problem is that all of those were being built and adding to our infrastructure, adding fuel to, uh, to you know, what people were using to get to work and things like that. And the good news is that that's running out and there's fewer and fewer of those permits left. But once, once that's really tapped, that's what's gonna force, force people to start building in Tacoma because there literally won't be any more land left. So to so the permitting folks, uh, what is the time horizon? What's the process it takes for somebody to come in and say, hey, I want to build uh, a medium-sized, medium-footprint place, or I want to build a largest complex? Uh, I know, like, Point Ruston's been in the planning since, God, I was born, probably. So, like, what's the, the time horizon for this, typically? So, if I, if I could, so um, what we've done downtown, as opposed to Proctor and other areas, is pre-approve projects without doing separate traffic studies, without doing separate environmental reviews. And so my example is the new... Um, no, tilt it towards you, like... So my, my example is um, the UWT, the new Y, <clears throat> the Y UWT student building from pre-application to opening was 17 months um, because we skipped all of those steps. So we are trying in, in downtown Tacoma to be really competitive so that where projects take four years or five years in Seattle, uh, we can do it in two years, and so uh, and Lauren, with his master planning, has benefited from the same sort of approach. Our pre-approval, pre-review, uh, we are trying harder to facilitate those projects, particularly in areas where people want development, and downtown is one of those areas. Just for the record, when you said it was 17 months from application to finished? Pre-application. They came in with their concepts, and they were able, because they did design build, and because of everything else, they were open in 17 months. But that's only in downtown Tacoma where that's happening? Correct. Why? Why only downtown? Because uh, Washington State has the most complicated environmental rules in the country. <laughs> and we, we, we never give up, we never give away it, we never stop. So before the Growth Management Act, 1990, for those who were, I was born. Sixth grade. I was, yeah, I was, I, yeah. yeah. so in 1990, before 1990, we used the State Environmental Policy Act to, um, to review every project individually. Along came the Growth Management Act. We decided to do things uh, with formal regulations that are straightforward to administer. Uh, but we never got rid of the State Environmental Policy Act. And so neighbors appeal projects based on view restrictions. Labor unions appeal projects based on the fact that they're not union members. And so we have added this huge cumbersome process um, where everything can be appealed. And the only way out of that is to do something, um, an environmental impact statement covering the entire downtown, which we did, and now we can expedite projects in downtown. But it's a very um, uh, um, 
uh, people-intensive process. Everyone needs to be engaged in that process, agree that these are good ideas. And so we had a very intense nine-month conversation with downtown interests and residents and decided that we would not have SEPA appeals. Someone's view gets blocked, too bad. So I'm gathering that it's really hard to build and complicated to build. Eric, I'm wondering if you can jump in for a moment. What are the environmental consequences of not building more housing? When, when you look at you know, what you're talking about with the environmental laws, it's, it's, it's like this on or off. Do you build the building or do you not build the building? But there's always a third option, which is do you build it in Ording? Do you build it in you know, Phoenix? Like, like People are moving places. People are having babies, as has been pointed out. And if we don't have the housing, they move somewhere else. And so that's one of the things where the laws fail to address this issue of like, we need to put these people somewhere. Where do we put them? Because right now it's like either it's here or it stays a parking lot. And what we're failing to address is that they will move somewhere and they will move to a state or to a community that has looser laws because that's where they can afford their housing. So there's this, this bigger issue that's happening where our laws are not adequately addressing that issue that, that people are going to move somewhere and, and we're just not... If we're, if we're not building it here, they're going to move to wherever the housing is. So I feel like we've kind of beat the it's hard to build houses horse to death, and it's over there suffering right now. I'm sorry, horse. And so what I want to talk about instead is, like, where are we building and what's going on? Um, Lauren, can you talk about... So it, I feel like if you live in a certain part of town and don't go to the waterfront very often, and you went to Point Ruston right now, you'd be like, holy S, what is all that? Okay. So can you talk about how many homes are down there right now available? What's the long-term goal? And can you talk about how that process has been for you as a builder? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, there are 550 people living at Point Ruston right now. There's 85-some-odd uh, condos and 235-some-odd apartments, 700 units under construction, various phases, either application, pre-application, or actually going vertical, uh, literally physical construction. Grand total unit count will be 1,200, plus a hotel, plus all the commercial retail space. Um, you know, the, I think your underlying question, why there and not you know, downtown or, or elsewhere, why is that density being created there? Uh, you know, we always think it's, it's sort of a magical place. You're, you've got Point Defiance on one side and Ruston Way on the other. You know, it, Waterfront views water, sell, like, yeah, yeah it makes sense. Mount Rainier view, you know, it's got it, all of those things, you check the box, and, and, and what you're looking for is a, as a property developer. Um, Tacoma's hungry, though. It, it just so happens that, that this 100 acres was a super fun site, and all of a sudden, all at once, became available for development. But you look at these trends, Pierce County in 2016 was the fastest growing county in the nation, year over year growth. We had 12,000 people moved to Pierce County. You know, we've had 9,700 some odd people moved to Tacoma in the last decade. This area is booming. They're being forced out of Seattle, and we have to figure out ways to accommodate the folks that want to live here. They want to live here because it's cheaper. I mean, I, I find it interesting. Well, and it's, 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 it's better, by the way. It's, oh, it's hey, I, yeah. I mean, I, it is cheaper, and, and, and there's a better lifestyle. I mean, we, you know, we kind of tell the two-second story, hey, you want to go run and grab your, your gallon of milk in downtown Seattle? Good luck. You're, you're going to take two hours to honestly run that errand. We live in the North End. Run up to Safeway or Met Market, and you're back in 10 minutes. That's that's a great lifestyle, and there's pretty good teachers, pretty good school district. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm kissing Nate's. I'm ki Ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Cohen, Lauren Cohen. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm going to move on from this in a second. Uh, 
So you're building a ton of housing down at Point Ruston. Like, obviously, building housing is profitable for you. What would it take, policy-wise, resource-wise, from the outside, from whatever, to enable you to do the same thing in another part of town? We, we've built all over this city. Our, our first project was on the east side, up, up by Lincoln, uh, East 32nd and D, called Hawthorne Hill. Um, I, th I think you can build, build everywhere in this, in this city and be successful. Uh, we've done it. We've, we've built down by the mall in the Tacoma Mall sub area plan section town that's being uh, reviewed by Ian right now. Was that cowbell worthy almost? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that there's, there's a stigma here, and, and we got to talk about that. It, it keeps, when I talk about that outside money, that outside equity that's got to come in uh, to get these housing starts going, uh, it's not coming here, uh, I think, because there's a certain stigma, uh, particularly to our neighbors to the north. You know, oh, the returns there, it's Tacoma, it's crime ridden. You got all these weird things going on. I gave an interview to Q13 last week, and the guy got asked, uh, does the Tacoma Roma still exist? I'm going, of course not, come on. But he literally saying to his audience on the Q13 Morning News, well, I, I've been down here five times and I haven't smelled it, but I, I can't promise you it's not there. We've got some big stigma type barriers to overcome that, that, that I, I think, you know, in, in a way hold, hold the back a little bit. So I'm gonna pivot to the permitting and planning people here. Uh, at our last Civics Happy Hour, the room seemed very excited about what I'm going to call mother-in-laws and what you have really technical and jargony names for that you can get into in a second. Um, wait. No jargon. Okay, good, no jargon, great. So if it's difficult to build large projects, and if we don't for sprawl traffic environmental reasons want the growth happening in Ording and Eatonville and then driving down Pack Avenue for hours, my God, and like... Graham, just praise the Lord, nothing about Graham. Um, <laughs> what does it take, and how do people go about getting permitted to build a mother-in-law? Right now or eventually? Both. So first things first, if you have an accessory dwelling unit or mother-in-law, so that is the jargon, accessory dwelling unit, um, chances are it may not be legal because the city outlawed them for a long time. Um, in the early 90s, we said, oh, yeah, you can put one in your house if you go through this special and really ridiculous permitting process. We changed that probably five years ago to make it less ridiculous, but still there's a permitting process um, to do an apartment in your, in your house. Now, your house has to be owner-occupied. You do have to get building permits to, you know, make sure it's safe. Um, and then you just have to register that you promise it will always be owner-occupied. And if I say owner-occupied one more time probably part of me will die. Um, because again, I think you're talking about that inherent bias about people who are homeowners versus renters. And it runs very, very deeply in all communities. Um, it's very institutionalized. And um, it's still something that persists in our zoning code. If you want a detached accessory dwelling unit, unless you're one of the three, count them three, that were approved through a pilot program in the last two years, you're out of luck because they've never been legal in the city. So if you find something with an apartment in the garage, don't tell anybody and be nice to your tenants. <laughs> and that hasn't changed. So we did an infill program. We went through a study. We went through the planning commission with an infill pilot, with an infill program. Can you define infill for the room, please? So infill is the idea of normal neighborhoods 
and adding houses in those neighborhoods, either by letting some of the vacant lots be developed, letting there be smaller lots. So if you have a really big side yard, you could split it off and build another house. Letting there be more accessory dwelling units or letting some of the houses convert to duplexes. And let's just say it was fairly dramatically scaled back to become a pilot program because of the response to, I don't want more traffic in my neighborhood. I don't want to lose the parking on my street in front of my house. I'm worried about pedestrian safety. Um, some of the things that are really valid neighborhood concerns, but maybe don't always play out when you have these accessory dwelling units or you have density, it's just different. I'm just, I'm sorry, when you were going through like the NIMBY checklist, <laughs> I looked at the audience and like seven heads were just like, NIMBYs, NIMBYs, NIMBYs. <laughs> Eric, please. I have a question, if I can ask a moderator-like question. Is it easier to create an Airbnb in your basement than to rent it out long-term to a tenant? Yes. yes, it is. So, yeah. So, okay, I'll go for the obvious now, question. Now, you do have to have exit signs, and you have to tell people how to get out of the house if there's a fire, and you do have to get a business license, but you do if you have a rental anyway. So, so. obvious question. Uh-huh. Why? Well... I don't know that Ian was any more involved in the attempt for infill housing than I was. No. And I can't say... <laughs> Smart move. And I can't really say the language I'd like to say in a public forum. But when... <laughs> but when it was proposed, and this is not me in my official role, so here, let me... Oh, name tag's off. <laughs> We had certain neighborhoods that went apeshit. <laughs> that said, we don't want this density, we don't want more, we don't want more density in our neighborhood. Now, it, looking at that side of it, there are some of the, some of the outcry did come from some of our more densely developed neighborhoods already. But some of it was just, I don't want change. Let them build the big apartment buildings downtown. I don't want anything different in my neighborhood. Do me a favor. If one of the neighborhoods that pushed back rhymes with Proctor, blink twice. <laughs> okay, check. So, Ian, please. So, so if, uh, if I could just add, though, part of the conversation I think needs to be there are a thousand housing units being constructed right now in the brewery district around a very revitalized growing UWT. Four and a half thousand students going to 14,000 students. Um, there are two to three hundred um, smaller units being built right around the most intense transit hub in the region, namely around Freight High Square and the Dome. Um, where micro units are being built, so our market rate, we're getting some takers for a, the 20% set aside for affordable. So um, I, I think the bigger, the bigger regional discussion I missed that comment. I'd be happy to respond, but it was. But, but, but the, big, the bigger discussion, I think, is to get away from the sprawling out in the countryside um, where you need three cars to get around is the question is, are people willing to make the lifestyle change to live downtown, take the bus, take the light rail, uh, bike, walk? I mean, that's the lifestyle thing. And you see that up in Vancouver. You go up there. People have made that adjustment. They're not trying to keep three cars running, and they're not trying to live out on the edge of town. So it's a question of... We have a market, and it's building, and it's growing. It's not terribly affordable, uh, because we're getting um, uh, more demand from the region coming to Tacoma, because we've got a great lifestyle here. But it is happening downtown. Trying to push it into the neighborhoods is the reason I didn't volunteer for that assignment. 
So I, I do want to return to the mother-in-law thing for a second because so the question was uh, why is it so difficult to build them? And we got we, we heard that it is difficult to build them, and the number that only three have been permanent in the last two years makes my brain throb. So two things. Why is the policy the way that it is, and what would it take to get the policy changed? Like, who should people in this room put political pressure on and be talking to? Council members and the Planning Commission members to say, you've been through this pilot project, you've seen these successes, we want to see more of it. Um, and whether it's incremental, I mean, I've got a billion ideas on how to make it the next step. Um, I think is probably the way to go. There are good concerns. How much do you put into design? Like, do you want your detached accessory to look like the house? Does it get to be bigger than the house? Does it smaller than the house? Be and, and, and how much can you have? And can you have them on every single lot? On I mean, there's a lot of good things to look at when you start to add um, people into a neighborhood that was built to handle a certain amount of people. But, but I think that you start asking those questions. So when we, when we get through this demonstration and we say, these were pretty awesome, what's next? And it's, and it's really holding the elected officials to what does come next so that we can have the full range, that, that you can live in a 300-unit apartment building with a dog wash if you want, or you can live in someone's backyard and have barbecues with them if you want. I'm still just on this thing about the mother-in-laws really fast. So the mother-in-laws seem to me like a very workable solution, but the current permitting process isn't allowing them to be built. Detached. Detached. Right. But right. attached can be built? Yeah. Pretty much if you can fit one onto or into your existing house, it's just a matter of getting the permits and spending the money to do it. Setbacks, maybe, if you're adding on. So it depends. It's very specific. Wait, what's a setback for the room? So a setback is how far your building has to be from a property line. So if you're adding on to your house, there may be restrictions in how much you can add on. But if you have a basement that has the right ceiling height and that has exiting, then those are the sorts of things we see converted to the accessory units. Okay. So my pocket is vibrating like crazy, which means the Twitter questions are very, very deep. So what I think we're going to do right now is take a break. If you need a beverage, now's a great time to grab a beverage. And we're going to come back in about seven minutes, and we'll take the questions from Twitter and from the next cards. Look at them running for the beer. You, you lushes. <laughs> All right, so we'll be right back. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the questions are plentiful and wonky as hell. You are some GD nerds out there. Good God. So, whoo. A couple of folks grabbed me by the sleeve and were like, hey, Nate, hey, Nate, hey, Nate. And so before we go to your questions, really fast, Eric, you have a crazy stat about land use and density. I would love for you to share with the room. Yeah. Um, who here has been to Brooklyn? Anyone? Okay. So a lot of people have been to Brooklyn. Brooklyn is, is a very dense city, but of course it's not as dense as Manhattan right next door. And there's a really interesting stat that if you took the entire United States population... And if we all lived in one city at the same density as Brooklyn, we would only take up, out of the entire United States, a city the size of New Hampshire. So if you think about one of our absolutely smallest states and you think about all of the places that we're living right now, our land use is really out of whack because we could be living in much smaller places than we are. And every time we pave over you know, new land that we're trying to live in, 
um, it's just making it much more difficult to, to have a healthy environment. And so this is one of those places where nationally we just have these issues where we're not willing to bike to use the subway and things like that. We don't all live in places like Brooklyn. Um, but I would say that the, if you want to have the privilege of living on your five acres, as opposed to living in a dense city, that, that it's got to be much more expensive than it is because it's just eating up all of our land. Which is why we should sell the Dakotas. And it would not be popular. Exactly. Thank you, Margaret. North Dakota, out. South Dakota, out. Um, one question that was asked to me in the back by three different people is, we're talking about building more housing, but all our talk about building more housing is at market rate. What are the challenges to building more low-income housing? Well, it, it doesn't pay your, your mortgage to your lender because the revenue stream isn't, isn't enough. So you need to figure out what expenses you can, can cut out. The, the biggest opportunity in Tacoma is they do the 12-year tax abatement. So. And then one more thing is, is there was also, we had a conversation up here about how many jobs, uh, not jobs, how many like, projects are coming up and are in the various phases of development that like the public doesn't know about necessarily. So could you all run through like what's in the hopper right now? Well, at least a thousand units under construction in the downtown area, and another thousand that are in either preliminary or or, or, or moving forward with design. So I mean, uh, the market's discovered downtown Tacoma. The UWT is a huge success. Uh, the brewery district's taken off. Stadium has been a success for for, for years. Um, we're getting big apartment buildings going up in in Stadium right now, yeah, and it's not going to stop. The, the issue is going to be affordability, and and the and one of the only saving graces, I think, is that if you can persuade households to, to live without three cars, they can afford more rent, which will then allow that places will be more livable. It's very simplistic, but I, I think at core, that's what it comes down to. And that takes transit, which is a whole other conversation. I'm just going to... So we have a lot of questions, and they're wonkier than usual. And so I'm just going to pass the microphone and then snicker for a little bit. <laughs> So I usually try to categorize, but I don't know how well I've categorized. So if we pop around a bit, forgive them. It's my fault. So the first question is, why don't banks want to fund four or six or six or eight duplexes? Do those owners default frequently? Why are they hard to manage? Go. So, and I'm not a bank person, but in the building code, there is a completely different building code that applies if you're building three or more units or if you're building two or one unit. And so um, the money's different, the expenses are different, the requirements are different. And so I need more money to build a four unit building than I do to build one, four one unit buildings. So it's, okay. it's, it's, an, it's an amount and then I, I would hazard a guess, and again, I'm not a finance person, there's a risk to that first time. So. I know you can build a single family house. I don't believe you can build an eight unit building and finance it and build it and get it done. And so I'm not gonna give you the money because the risk is too much. Lauren, you look uh, like you want to say I something. Mean, I, it, I was trying to remember, I think it was like Wolf of Wall Street, or the line is like, I, I don't get out of bed for less than 10 million. And, and I literally heard that from a guy at Goldman Sachs. He said, we, we don't do deals less than 100 million right now. You do the same underwriting, you do the same due diligence, you spend the same brain power to underwrite a million dollar investment as you do a hundred million dollar investment. So, you know, the, the money follows the opportunity and, and these guys are wanting to do those bigger deals is, is why those smaller projects are harder to get financed. So if I, I could add, 
around the country, there are lots of areas that are setting up community land trusts and nonprofits are, are doing what, um, filling that gap. And so um, just want to, there are proposals out there and people are owning parts of their, of having equity partners in their, in their housing units. They're also having someone else own the land so they own the unit. There are lots of creative structures that are being used around the country. Uh, haven't seen too many of them take hold in Tacoma yet. Okay, well, and then the question I have in my hand is, is the problem big developers counted on two hands instead of a diverse pool of investors? It seems like we're stuck in a legacy of financing and long-term revenue models. Like, is that kind of uh, that was my the answer. answer? That was my answer. Yeah, okay. The answer to that question is yes. Don't blame big developers. <laughs> um, so there is sort of a side question, which I think we answered. I dropped it, but I'm reading it from here. It says, why are we so excited about single-family developments anyway? But is that kind of the answer, that it's... Yeah, yeah. That's a much, much longer story. Um, you, you, could go, you could go all the way back to home mortgage lending and the home mortgage lending deduction and the fact that post-World War II, here's where I get to be a P&G and housing geek, um, post-World War II, we decided it was really important for people returning from war to be able to buy single-family homes because that was the American ideal. And it's been that way for 75 or 80 years. For some people. White people returning from war. Right, pe white people who were not redlined, who had a male head of household. <laughs> I like it. That's a whole topic for a whole night. So, but if, if, I, could just, if I could just add, though. Yes. Um, people who, I've been on the permit side of things. Nothing gets people more excited if their major investment is a $300 home, $300,000 home that they own. They will do all sorts of damage to all sorts of people. They think that value is going down by 3%. I've been there, I've been where Shirley is. That's the problem is people, their major life savings is in their home and they don't, they want those prices to go up. They don't want more units in the neighborhood. They want to protect their, well, I, I'm a, I, I hear you. I'm, but, but, but that is, I mean, that's what you're overcoming. And, and uh, I've used the example of Nate earlier. In Vancouver, what they actually did was um, to put accessory dwelling units in, they actually had votes block by block. Some blocks voted to have ADUs, accessory dwelling units, and some others said no. So that's what Vancouver got so frustrated over this, they actually decentralized it to the block level. And can, can I just point out that, that we live in a country that expects that the only way you will probably save for retirement is through home equity. So it is not surprising that people are worried about their 3%, whereas in other countries, if you can find a better, more stable way to provide for uh, retirement, then the pressure is relieved on ever-increasing home equity. All right. So this kind of goes on that ADU part. So is there a publicly accessible report about how that ADU pilot is going? Well, believe it or not, <laughs> if anybody's a nerd enough to explore our website. You know this room? OK, you are nerds enough. Yay. <laughs> so I can't tell you the exact URL, but if you Google Tacoma Infill Housing, you will find the beautiful webpage that Lauren Flemister is working on. So she's the lead senior planner who's been working on it. I would expect that she'll put a report on there. You can see the whole history on it and how they made the decisions on which projects got permitted and hopefully what next steps are on there. 
So a follow-up question to that is how are we measuring success? I don't know. <laughs> Neither do I. Okay. Okay. Hold on, damn it. Hold on now. Wait, yeah, wait, wait. Wait, wait. Su- I'm sorry. Success this- is what five council members think of it. No, I, so, so I'm terribly afraid then that we're like head, running headlong into like a shoot ready aim thing. If we don't know what success looks like with building houses and like building, like, come on. So that was probably a little flippant of an I, answer. I, I know. I'm sorry. Um, Go ahead. And, and again, partly it's just my ignorance of not being involved in the project. There, in the project brief, there's a whole discussion about what was hoping to be achieved with these demonstration projects and what they were looking at in terms of success of the projects and distribution throughout the city. And it wasn't just accessory dwelling units. It was limited duplexes on big lots and then some cottage housing developments and how those would go. And um, the the big pressure, at least from my viewpoint, talking to people every day is that detached accessory unit. We have 10 shifts where we talk to the public every week. I do it once a week. I get asked every week. And so I can extrapolate that that's at least 10 people a week are asking, how do I do an accessory dwelling unit? How do I get help with my mortgage? Or is this legal or things like that? So so we have a follow-up question to that, which is, is it legally the same to convert an existing detached structure and building a new one? Yes. It is legally the same. So... It, so, so if you so That's the, the way I understand that I have a detached garage, I want to convert yes. it to an apartment. Is that different than if I want to build a new new? Yeah, I want to change it to an apartment. Is that different than if I have an empty backyard and I want to build a cottage back there? I'm getting a nod from the writer. No different. Hey. Wait. No different. Sorry. Well, I mean, the building code stuff's going to be different, but in terms of getting a permit, legally getting a permit to do that as a dwelling unit, it's the same path. Which there isn't one, really. That was the never mind. Okay. Wait. So never mind. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, right. Okay. Uh, little side question: How do we know what particular occupancy a neighborhood is built for? He's like, no. Okay. <laughs> well, so Ian's the one that brought up the Growth Management Act of 1990 something. 1990, I was here. 1990, I was in college. Um, in that all jurisdictions, all cities, all counties that had a certain growth rate or were of a certain size were compelled to do a comprehensive plan. So Tacoma had a plan before that, but really our comprehensive planning started in the early 90s. Through the state law, we have to update it occasionally. And basically what it says is here's our long-range plan for how we're going to grow and what we're going to look like as a city over this period of time. In that the plan sets out these, what are called land use intensities or future land use designations. And that says this area of the town is supposed to remain single family. And generally this means eight dwelling units per acre. This area of town is supposed to be low intensity, single multifamily. So we're talking garden apartments or duplexes. That's generally 10 units an acre. And I'm making it up, so don't correct me, Steve. Um, And it goes on from there. This area of town is meant to be an employment center. This area of town is meant to be an industrial center so that when projects get to people like me, we have some policy basis that's come down from our decision makers, that being the city council, on what the right or the next decision is supposed to be. 
That's a really long answer to a really simple question. And if, if, I, if I could add to that a little bit, what's different downtown and one of the really progressive things we've done is to say there are no longer, in most parts of downtown, off-street parking requirements. Every off-street parking space is thirty to forty thousand dollars. That gets added to your rent, and so, and so, all, all these, pro, all the. Sorry, sorry. Wait, sorry, Ian. I'm sorry, Ian. Just, just so. <laughs> no. <laughs> wait. So I understand what you're saying, but I don't understand what you're saying. So you're saying that including an off-street parking slot in a development in a structured. A structured building, not on a... Cost $30,000 per car. Yes. Get out of here, man. No, it's actually correct. So, um... <laughs> can I... Can, um, can I add something to that? You, 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 you know, we... I love this guy! <laughs> we, 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 you know, we go back to this whole thing about the value of people owning a single-family home. One of the things that happened in planning 40 or 50 years ago was people decided you needed to have so many off-street parking spaces because we designed everything around the automobile. And so the eight-plex that we're talking about in wherever part of town will need to have 16 off-street parking spaces. Right? Close enough? And so, and so, um, what we, and so there's a lot of very uh, creative thinkers over the last five or ten years that have said we are, are uh, um, going to uh, uh, decouple parking from, from your unit. And so that reduces costs significantly. And so the building I'm in downtown has uh, 100 uh, parking spa spaces. They don't, people won't pay the $100 a month for them. So, um, well, they, they lease them to a neighbor. Yeah. The, the other thing I would point out to that is in addition to the thirty or $40,000, you're also talking about 250 to 300 square feet of space, which is half an apartment, right, that you're building for a car or even a full apartment if you're willing to live small. So it's um, a pretty significant cost. And when Ian says things like 16 stalls, it hurts. I, I, I hate answering that to people that your development is going to be driven by how much parking you can provide. Shit. <laughs> can, can, can people go online somewhere and see what their neighborhood is projected to, to handle in the same question? Like, can you go and look? Yes. Website. I don't know that URL either. But, but under existing... But under, exist, under existing densities, what you see around Tacoma is pretty much what it's zoned for. There isn't much capacity, and that's why you're talking about accessory dwelling units. On the other hand, downtown, you can accommodate 100,000 people and not even notice. So I don't, I mean. Do you vote? This question, I don't know. This question, I, mm, all right. Because we're still talking about parking. <laughs> and this wants to know if intended parking regulations and requirements how that would increase density impact parking, or will it not be required? How do you how do you free up garage space for housing? Did we not just? I don't, I'm confused. I think I answered that question. I thought so. Okay, <laughs> he answered it. <laughs> it's half an apartment. Wait, wait, All right. Although, how many parking spaces are you building per we, we, uh, at Yeah, but, um, yeah. We, we we just built a 1,200 stall garage to do the math, uh, and it's not enough. So, you know, there there there's there's market demand, and then there's the zoning code. So, you know, we, we're at 100% occupancy in our parking stalls. So it's, it's interesting. 
All right. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'm going to ask you the two, like, what next questions. Ah! Okay. Thanks, dear. Great. Okay, that goes in the last three. Okay. If refusing in-law portion, no. If refusing... That's the one you just got? No. Okay. Uh, got it. If refusing in-law is part of what drove up housing prices in Seattle. Why didn't they have the same rules as we do? I guess is what they're asking. So if in Seattle they didn't let them do in-law apartments, right, and it drove up prices, how is that the same or different than what's happening here? Do we have the same rules? Is it having the same outcome? I want a Shane Bell design review. Like, I feel like I don't know that. I didn't say it. It was Marguerite. Marguerite! <laughs> Shame Bell. I'm really busy tweeting. I wasn't able to get my question in. <laughs> well, tell us what that means. So, design review is when, tell me because I'm not a city planner if I get it wrong. So, so, design review is when laws are put into place that require certain people are allowed to like look over and make sure that the designs meet the neighborhood character and aren't ugly uh, by the estimation of those people. Yes. So, but, but what that does, in theory, that sounds really awesome because that means you don't get like Not communist right. block style cement, you know, whatever. But also, like, it means that shit takes forever. And that makes it's things really expensive. So what happens in Seattle is you can't get anything done in any kind of reasonable amount of time, and 60,000 people move there in like a year. So tell oh, Okay. So since I don't work with our fine neighbors to the north, there there is design review process, and it is a... In many ways, for many kinds of projects, it is a longer and more difficult permitting process. There are some things that I think that they do quicker and easier than we do in Tacoma. They did have a backyard cottage program. Um, I honestly don't know what happens to it. Okay. Uh, you know, you don't. See, I don't see a lot about it now. I don't see permits for them now. Um, again, for people who really like to do interesting things, you can look up any permit anywhere in Seattle on their website and see the plans and look at what's getting built. Um, if you're bored on a rainy afternoon, and I don't see those ADUs getting built anymore. Again, Seattle, yeah, in Seattle, they're expensive. They're not cheap to build because you already have those high building costs. But I, I don't know, honestly know what happened to but their plans. What, what they are doing is they're tearing down homes and building fourplexes, which is not economical here, but does actually pencil in that Seattle. So you true. see all of these single-family homes going down and then fourplexes going up. So it, it makes financial sense there, but it doesn't make sense here So yet. they're like one way ahead of us. They, they don't need the ADU. They, they can just do a fourplex. Last Adult Sox Happy Hour, one of our guests referred to those as tall skinnies. Oh, okay. Yes? Wasn't the tall skinny a single-family? It's not a real word. <laughs> Sounds like a drink. All right. Sounds like a drink I would like. Okay, here we go. Uh, question is, is there movement now around places with existing ADUs not having to be owner-occupied? I know, right? I already had the longest day in human history. <sighs> so, no. 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 Anyone else? No? Okay. Do you know anything different? I know you're not on the spot, but no, the, the, that's one of the conditions of an ADU. Okay. So these are kind of the same vein. I'll start with the first one I had. So condos and a liability issue. 
How can we empower lower middle income to obtain equity rather than rent when the condos are problematic? RE liability. So home ownership in the center of Tacoma, single family owner, et cetera. Read it again. Yeah, condos, liability issue. For the owner or for the developer? How can we empower lower middle income to obtain equity rather than rent when the condos are problematic? Liability. It's a liability issue. I mean, I, I, I get the question. I, I disagree with the premise. It's never an okay. issue of the, of the owner. It, it's a problem for the insurance company. It's a problem for the builder, the developer. Um, what is the Will you state the problem? The I guess problem I lost the problem in the question. That, uh, in the state law allows for construction defects uh, to be filed against the builder or developer uh, within a four-year window of time of the, of the owner taking occupancy. Okay. And case law has, has said that it doesn't even need to be a, a, an actual problem causing damage. It could be a latent defect. So you, you end up with these battle you know, kind of discovery battles, if you will, or expert witness battles between engineers for the developer, engineers for the homeowners association, or or the individual owner, saying, "Hey, that it looks like that window wasn't installed right. I know it's not leaking now, but it might in ten years." And that, under state law right now, has is an allowable claim. So, there's a reason why we're the only ones building condos. We we actually are, we self finance them, and no lender really touches them. So there, there's a barrier to entry for for sale condominiums because of that state law. But I've never heard it stated from the fact that it, it, it's harming the owner. It, it harms the builder developer. It harms the renters who aren't, can't buy into a condo. What now? Can you? Okay. What? It harms the renters who can't buy into a condo because people are reluctant to build condos. I lived in a condo for 14 years. Uh, I was the president of the HOA, and we would get letters saying, like, free inspection to come out and evaluate it. And it's like, are your nails 18 inches apart or 12 inches apart? Because if they're 18 inches apart, that's not spec, and we'll sue, basically. I mean, like, there, there's this whole industry around creating lawsuits to... to but it's a liability. The developer's always going to say it's too restrictive, the risk is too great, and the lending... I'm not going to build. And the consumers are going to say, but what about protection for consumers? Because can we sue when shit's... Right. If there's a like, like we had a problem where there was a real, we we had we had a problem where there was a real issue of water intrusion after the four-year issue. So 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 there is there are certainly real issues that evolve, but the the fear of litigation has caused everyone to start building and, rentals. And so that's why I want to go back to the to the the finance structures again. That's why I think communities like Tacoma need to look at nonprofits, co-ops, community, uh, community land trusts, other ways to put financing structures together. I mean, um, that is the way forward. Okay. I mean, but... Okay, you run. This is how, I mean, in my view, the developer's view who's building new condominiums in, in the city, this is how out of control the condo defect rules have gotten, though. We literally had a building where we had a anonymous trust come and buy a unit. The guy who's the trustee representing the trust has worked his way onto the board and weirdly started advocating for these engineers to come do these inspections. You start to scratch the surface and understand the trust is owned by a law firm who does construction defect litigation. 
So it, it, it's a totally abusive law right now that, need, in my opinion, needs to be rebalanced so that we can actually have for sale condos built in this community that span the range of, of, of pricing. Right now, it's only luxury housing. So I have two questions. I'll call the exit questions. Uh, exit question number one is, I just want to kind of summarize for the room, like kind of learnings. One, detached mother-in-laws are basically not buildable in the city of Tacoma legally, and to get that change is going to require putting pressure on the city council, correct? And the neighbors, and your neighbors, but yes. Okay. Thing two I'm kind of walking away with right now is that cars are the devil. <laughs> okay, okay. And then I guess the exit question for each of you all is that there are lessons to be learned from like what has happened to Seattle and what's happening in the Bay. And I talk frequently about how Oakland is where Tacoma should be looking for solutions. I guess I ask to you all, what's one lesson from somewhere else that you wish the city of Tacoma would learn and apply in order to, to create more housing in, in the city? I have two lessons, if I can. The first lesson is actually from Seattle. Seattle's rents are right now projected to level out, if not go down, because they've built so much housing that they have actually met the demand. This helps that Amazon is probably building somewhere else for their HQ2. And so you have slowing growth, and the, the housing went up, and they project that it will level off or go down. So you can actually show in a city like even Seattle, which has explosive growth, that if you build to meet good demand, you can keep prices at least vaguely in line. That would be the first thing. The second thing that I would that I would say is that you have to think uh, regionally between all of the towns around us, and I would look to the Twin Cities. Um, right now, there are many of our suburbs that don't allow you know building of mixed-use development and things like that. They're exclusively only building single-family units. If you look at places like the Twin Cities, they are sharing the tax revenue from the Mall of America, which is in Bloomington. They're sharing it all around. And you can coordinate planning as well. So once you start breaking past city boundaries, and you can coordinate planning and tax revenue so that you give incentive for those communities to start participating in, in the growth plans, you can actually make a real difference. Because right now, Tacoma is bearing it on its own, and our suburbs are not really participating. Oh, my turn? Yep. Twin Cities, I thought he was talking about Rustin. But, the, you know, the, um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously wor working, working very hard to, to try and add 40 extra acres to, to y'all city. But, you know, I, I mean, it's funny. We're, we're talking about nimbyism, right? I think that's the heart of this debate. Why aren't ADUs allowed? Why is Rustin's zoning code restrict us to 60 feet and we can go to 80, 85 in Tacoma? Uh, we're talking about NIMBYism, we're protecting views. It, I get that America's built on like this manifest destiny of property rights and it's, it is our way to you know, stabilization in our, in our older age, but you know, there, there's gotta be a fundamental shift to, to, to the thinking. Like, why is there a parking lot? Literally, we're, we're in the most dense neighborhood in the city, across from City Hall where the, you know, one of the biggest employers in the city is, but why isn't there a, a building like there? Is, is it? <laughs> Sorry, I'm still laughing at the Rustin joke. I'm just like, <laughs> that, that was no joke. We we worked <laughs> we we worked very very hard on that and <laughs> smoke. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. Anyway, um, I don't know. I lost my train of thought with the smoke machine. 
I will give one shout out to, to a fellow panel member. Ian Muntz negotiated the interlocal agreement two years ago, actually helped draft it. And the interlocal agreement was entered two weeks ago between Tacoma and Ruston. And, and Tacoma now uh, takes on all the permitting land use authority. Next. <laughs> Ian, you're up. <laughs> Ian, you're up. Ian, it is your turn, sir. It is your turn. Man, it's shady over here. It's so much, whew, it's dark. Ian, you're up. <laughs> uh, I, I'm gonna, the, 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 the biggest challenge we face regionally is the failure to decentralize jobs. Everyone's trying to cram into South Lake Union, downtown Seattle, and then people move further out, you know all this, try to get to those jobs. We need to decentralize jobs, not decentralize housing. I mean, we, and, 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 and it's, it's but, 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 but no one knows how to do that. I mean, the, the problem is, all, all, all of these hack, I mean, it's like Russell wanted to move to Seattle to be next to other tech geeks. I mean, the, that's the challenge. And if any of you have an answer to that, let me know. I'll, we'll do it tomorrow. Shirley, please. So I have two things. One, I always hesitate to say Ian's right. But. <laughs> but. I do think we, as a community, because we're creative, and one of the things that Tacoma's really got going for it is a lot of self-starters and a lot of, I mean, we have a lot of entrepreneurial spirit here, and we have a lot of good examples in other cities for how to do local finance, and I really think that's important, either from down payment assistant for first-time buyers to rental assistance to helping these these guys, they're, they're all guys, these guys who want to go from single family to, to three or four unit houses. We need to find a way to grow that locally and, and figure out how to do it. And there's money minds much smarter than mine. And my other thing is, is because I think about this a lot, and it, and it personalizes it for me, is I look at people who live in really strong urban areas, and I think, wow, they've got it really great. And how do I start to wrap my mind around living close to people and living in a community where I might be literally this close to people a lot versus the way I live now and am I okay with that and how do I start to make that more of my daily life so that yeah I can move into an apartment and have somebody living upstairs for me and that it's it's becomes part of our normal life to have people this close because we're gonna need to um so it's something I think that you, we can all work on I said exit question but I'm a liar um there's one thing that I meant to ask earlier on that just occurred to me uh, there was recently a moratorium on new housing uh, in the city of Gig Harbor. And so part of me goes, that seems crazy given the housing crunch, but also I assume a lot of that Gig Harbor housing was sprawl housing. And so I'm just wondering, quick take on like that moratorium in the big scheme of things, is that a good look, bad look, or we don't know? Each of you. Bad. Thank you. So um, having lived, lived through something similar to this uh, in a previous job. I mean, when change comes too quickly, people get very, very upset. And so part of what Shirley does on a daily basis and, and Stephen and others is try to normalize and, and fit things in. So Gig Harbor grew too fast and people didn't like it. And so they voted that way. And so part of this ADU discussion is how do you make people comfortable with it, reduce their fear? Because if you don't do it, you get a huge backlash. And so part of what we all do is be part of that, make sure we have a community discussion, not a community revolt. And I think one of the things that we really left out of this 
really complicated conversation is that there's all this other stuff that has to happen for a city to work and you have to have roads and you have to have traffic lights and you have to have schools and you have to have parks and sewer and water and power and sometimes that just can't keep up so whether or not a moratorium's the right thing to do I don't I don't know but there are these other th things and you start to just go we're so far behind we have to stop for now Eric, the, the backlash was like the, the incumbent mayor lost 25% to 75% or something like that. I mean, a massive backlash. And the, the huge irony of it is most of the development people didn't like was not even in Gig Harbor itself. It was across an unincorporated Pierce County. And so like this is where like we do have to think regionally because these things, we all affect each other across these invisible lines. Please, ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for our panel. Wait, keep those hands clapping, please, for our technicians, for Adam and for Doug. One more round of applause for the staff of Black Kettle. Thank you so much. Uh, the thing I heard is if you want to build a detached mother-in-law, you need to talk to city council. That's in my head right now. Uh, our next Adult Civics Happy Hour is going to be on April 16th. It's gonna be at Pacific Brewing down on Pack Avenue, and we're gonna be talking about hate groups in the Northwest. Damn, that's a reaction, all right, all right, all right. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight, and good night. Wanna learn more about life in Tacoma? Visit movetotacoma.com. Movetotacoma.com. This is Channel 253.